This is why we recommend more often than a grandfather um, you know, p- process actually using what's called grandfather discounting. And what that means is you basically say, hey, you've been a really loyal customer. Um, we made all of these improvements to the product. We've you know, been really, really delivering on value, obviously, probably in some different words, um, and then say, hey, your price is going to go up to X, um, but it's not going to go up to that particular point until you know, 12 months down the road or six months down the road, or as Netflix did with their price increase recently, two years down the road. Um, and the reason for this is that um, from a data standpoint, we found, and other you know, folks who also work in pricing have found, that customers are a lot more likely to accept a price increase if a discount simply is falling off of their particular invoice. Um, instead of just seeing a physical absolute jump um, in that particular price. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text quick tips to 33444. That's the word quick Q-U-I-C-K and tips, T-I-P-S is in sugar to 33444, and you get instant access. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Patrick Campbell of Price Intelligently and ProfitWell. Now, Price Intelligently provides SaaS software as a service pricing strategy expertise through their unique combination of data and industry experience. Um, They work with clients such as Optimizely, Zapier, Wistia, New Relic, and more. Uh, ProfitWell, which we'll dive into in a little bit, um, is a tool that provides software as a service metrics for Stripe. And um, my understanding is it will also connect with um, other uh, payment systems in the future. Is that correct, Patrick? Yeah, so we're all hooked up with Zora, and then we also have an open API that you know any billing system or any um, well, what we find most is a lot of unique billing combinations. Um, anyone can use it, so we're pretty excited about it. Got it. Cool. So we'll jump back into that in a second. But before we uh, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how it leads up into what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So my background's in econometrics and math. Um, studied econ um, in college, and then uh, I worked for the U.S. intelligence community and Google, um, both in kind of a value modeling um, realm. So basically, what that means is um, you're building models based on you know did. De- different data inputs that you have and you're taking a bunch of that data and optimizing it for discovering a particular outcome. So um, on a very high level, you know, working for US Intel, you know, you're trying to find terrorists, if you will. And, you know, at Google, you're trying to find money. Um, so uh, interesting because uh, it was a lot of the same types of models being used in very, very different ways. And um, from there, uh, you know, I jumped out and joined a startup where I actually worked on pricing. Um, startup's name was Jim Vara. They're customizable high-end jewelry, kind of like Blue Nile. 
Nile, but for gemstones. And uh, when I started working on pricing there, just kind of discovered just how you know really bad we are as um, entrepreneurs and just as operators at pricing, but how just insanely important it is to your business and ultimately to your growth. Um, it actually has the most impact on your growth compared to things like acquisition and retention. Um, so it's pretty wild how how little we focus on it, how little we know about it, and jumped out, started price intelligently. Um, Fun fact, we were actually like a pure software business starting out and kind of discovered that people um, really wanted some expertise on top of the software and they were willing to pay much more for it. So uh, that's where we kind of made a tech-enabled service business. And over the past three years, we've kind of built into um, you know completely bootstrap business. We're about 15 people here in Boston um, and we get to work with some of the best and biggest SaaS companies in the world. Some of them you mentioned, others that we're pretty proud of are you know folks like Atlassian, um, Big Commerce, et cetera. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the the long the long abridged rambly version of how we got here today. That's super helpful. So, are you able to talk about number uh, in, in terms of revenues? Can you give us a range? Yep. So the um, the price and tell side of the business does at this point is going to do about three million this year, um, and then the uh, profit well side of the business is a free freemium model. In the past eight months, we focused strictly on acquisition of free accounts, and we're just starting to monetize. So that's essentially at you know very very small amounts of money. Got it. Okay. So why don't you talk a little bit about how ProfitWell connects into you know price intelligently and what the overall goal is for, is for all of this. Yeah, it's a great question because um, we we now are at a point where because it's a separate domain, separate product, people are wondering, you know, is it a pivot where we're headed? And it kind of gets into what our product thesis or theses are around um, SaaS and monetization in general. Um, basically, we started off and we're continually going against this concept that monetization is something that a lot of people haven't solved, and it is something that's extremely important. And so we're trying to find what the best entry point into solving that problem looks like, um, and so. We had the price intelligently side of business, which has been you know doubling every year and you know going really really well. And um, it, it's a business that because of some of the people power that we have to put behind it um, to use the software and to interface with clients, that it's not necessarily something that scales substantially well. Um, and so we noticed a huge problem when we were basically getting paid to do our customer development with these clients um, that a lot of them had a lot of issues with calculating their SaaS metrics and their different subscription metrics. Um, in particular, a couple of companies that we worked with you know, prior to their IPOs in the past couple of years, um, they were actually calculating things as seemingly simple as MRR incorrectly. Um, and it was pretty wild because that was either wiping out or adding you know, millions of dollars to their market cap going into kind of their roadshow before their IPO. And so noticing this, we started building ProfitWell. And um, the way we look at it is this is our entry point or a, a much more scalable entry point into SaaS as a whole, um, meaning we can get as many SaaS companies on that platform as possible. And then we can start selling them different solutions to help them um, with their monetization, whether it's um, a credit card dunning product that we just released um, a couple of months ago, or it's um, you know some different products and add-ons that we're thinking about down the road here. Got it. That's super smart. So it sounds like you know you guys have a freemium type of model, and then you're acquiring all the users, and then in the back end, you guys are going to have all these other add-ons, and that's where the real revenues come in. Yeah, absolutely. We're providing what we feel is you know a ton of value because 
we're basically giving, you know, one, we're, we're the most accurate on the market. You know, we've gone head to head with a ton of other, you know, products that are out there and we've won every single time. Um, and we're also, you know, giving away just a ton for free in terms of all the reporting. And, um, it's one of those things where we could provide some real value. And, you know, the worst case scenario is that, you know, we can use that as a lead source for price intelligently. But fortunately, the, the theory has been, um, you know, working out well into practice with, you know, a lot of folks being excited and, you know, coming across willing to pay for some of the other add-ons we're thinking about. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a, I mean, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, the two, I mean, price intelligently, uh, f- in particular, you, you look at startups and it's completely right. When I was at startups before, we had no idea, you know, how to calculate the right metrics, you know, from a, from a gap perspective, accounting perspective, we didn't know what the hell was going on, um, as well. So I, I think that's super helpful. And I, I guess my question to you right now is, you know, for, for startups, you know, when is it, this is a really broad question, when is it the right time to start thinking about adjusting, increasing, decreasing your pricing? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question because it's, I have a, I have a 30 second answer and an hour long answer. So I think I'll give you the, uh, the 30 second answer at least. Um, so really, I mean, pricing and your monetization should be a continual process similar to your customer and product development. And a lot of people don't think about it that way, mainly because, you know, you don't learn pricing in school. You don't learn pricing typically at your job unless it was thrown at you because someone had to do it. Um, but the reason for that is if you think about the development of your product, um, you're adding features, you're improving support, you're improving your brand, you're improving all types of different things over time. And your price is is quite literally the center of your business. And what I mean by that is everything you're doing from your marketing and your sales to your product and operations is either driving someone to that decision point, whether it's an actual pricing page or a sales call or a rate card or is being used to support that customer and make sure that they keep paying once they finally made that decision point um, a clear in terms of paying you the initial time. And because of that, monetization is something that's an ongoing process. And so typically or more pragmatically, what we recommend is if you're an earlier stage company, let's say, you know, less than six months old, um, you know, you got a lot of stuff you're just trying to solve, you know, let alone, you know, pricing and doing a huge pricing project. And so um, get a framework to think about it. Um, get that initial price, you know, in terms of what your current structure is going to look like. And then make sure you're revisiting your pricing probably once every six months um, and reviewing it once every six months and maybe not necessarily making a change, um, but definitely, you know, exploring where you could be, you know, leaving money on the table. Um, and long story short, you know, if you're improving your pricing or your product, you should, you know, make sure you're improving your pricing. Right. Okay. Now, I, I guess to piggyback on this, you know, conventional wisdom, at least for me, is, you know, if you are, you know, let's say you're starting out, you're charging people five bucks a month. And, you know, all those people that have been with you since then, you know, my thinking is you just grandfather them in, even though you've increased your pricing to $300 a month, $500 a month. Now, that sounds like that's probably the incorrect move here. Is that is that kind of what I'm sensing? Is that correct? Yeah. So there, there's an advantage to very early on. So we're talking less than six months old, you know, or less than 12 months old for some businesses. There definitely is an advantage to kind of guaranteeing that rate for life just to get those initial logos, um, you know, to, to really, you know, get a lot of feedback because that's normally the exchange you're getting with some of your really early customers. Um, but if you think about it, you know, especially from a growth perspective or an acquisition perspective, if you're acquiring a significant number of users or customers, all of a sudden it's like, well, 
if we're only charging them five bucks a month, but they're getting $300 worth of value or, you know, many times that if you, if you theoretically can charge them $300, um, then, you know, we're kind of taxing our growth and we're flatlining where we could be. And this is why we recommend more often than a grandfather, um, you know, p- process actually using what's called grandfather discounting. And what that means is you basically say, Hey, you've been a really loyal customer. Um, we made all of these improvements to the product. We've, you know, been really, really delivering on value, obviously probably in some different words. Um, and then say, Hey, your price is going to go up to X. Um, but it's not going to go up to that particular point until, you know, 12 months down the road or six months down the road, or as Netflix did with their price increase recently, two years down the road. Um, and the reason for this is that um, from a data standpoint, we found and other you know folks who also work in pricing have found that customers are a lot more likely to accept a price increase if a discount simply is falling off of their particular invoice um, instead of just seeing a physical absolute jump um, in that particular price. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, there's a solution right there. That's great. Now, is there Absolutely. any, um, are there any case studies that you can share where you're able to help like a Wistia or whatever, you know, really, uh, crank revenues up by, you know, a specific amount? Anything you can share there? Yeah. So, so just case studies in terms of like the growth from just a- attacking your pricing. Is that right? Kind that's of correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it does definitely range and it does depend on, you know, the, the, um, you know, size of the company. But normally what we see is on average for a company that's really never attacked their pricing or has done a lot of minimal pricing changes, you can affect your absolute growth probably by around 30 to 40%. Um, and the main reason for that is because we're just really bad at identifying our customers, really bad at monetizing them. Um, but companies that are a little bit more forward thinking and are a little bit better just at, you know, their overall retention, understanding their customers, et cetera, you definitely see at least, you know, 11 to 15% boost in overall revenue um, and overall growth. So I would kind of pinpoint it between kind of 15 and 40%. Um, but the big thing to kind of keep in mind is, is that, you know, that, that might be, that might take some time to get that 40%, right? You know, but in reality, you can be making very small changes based on some very non-intensive research to get, you know, 5% here, 10% there. Um, mainly because, you know, pricing is a process, as I'll probably say about 15 more times, as I've already said it, you know, 15 more times. Got it. Okay. That, 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 that's, that totally makes sense. And I, I think about this, I'm, I'm like, I'm grinning over here. This is like conversion rate optimization for pricing, but it's, it's a very particular skill set that not a lot of people talk about. So I, I think that's cool. Um, so, I mean, you, you're, you're just talking about the process for a second. So if you were to bullet point, you know, maybe a five step, 10 step process, whatever that looks like, you don't need to go too far in detail, but what would, you know, a simple process for building a great, uh, great pricing strategy look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So a, a really kind of abridged version, and we write a lot about this on our blogs um, if you want to kind of dig deeper. Um, but the, the the abridged version is you always want to start with your buyer personas. Um, and we find that 99% of the companies we talk to don't have buyer personas that are in-depth enough. They might have cute names or, you know, really pretty avatars, you know, kind of like Startup Steve or Enterprise Eddie. But in reality, they don't have a lot of data around who Enterprise Eddie or Startup Steve actually is. Um, so what we recommend is start with your general buyer persona that you have. You know, we'll just continue talking about Startup Steve and Enterprise Eddie. Um, and then you're going to start to collect um, what we call relative preference data and price elasticity data. And that sounds 
maybe a little bit daunting, but the basic idea is, is you want to kind of force people to make decisions between different batches of features. So you might show them, you know, analytics support, um, or yeah, just show them analytics and support and ask them, Hey, what's the most important out of this group and the least important out of this group? Um, and then based on that information, you can start to figure out like, does enterprise Eddie care about support or analytics or does he care about something else? Um, and that starts to figure out packaging, which is super important to upgrades and getting expansion revenue. And then the price elasticity data can really come from asking, um, ranged questions. So human beings don't think about pricing as a single point. Point. They think about pricing on a spectrum or value on a spectrum. So I know that the cup of water in front of me is less expensive than the computer in front of me. And you can take advantage of that by asking questions like, you know, at what point is this product way too expensive? You'd never consider purchasing it. At what point is it a really good deal? At what point is it too cheap? You question the quality of it um, and so on and so forth. And once you start collecting that data and then slicing it against some demographic information that you have on those buyer personas, that's where you can start to translate that into real change in your pricing, where you can consolidate those findings down and then finally maybe do an A-B test or you know a multivariate test if you have enough traffic um, to make some sort of a change. And then you just loop back around to that buyer persona, collect extra data, consolidate down and test and just go on and so on and so forth. Okay. Now, let's assuming. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of this from a from a startup's perspective. You know, they might not have that many customers to begin with. So, you know, at what point, you know, how many customers do you need before you're able to start to ha- create this quantified persona set? Yeah, it's actually. I think not having enough customers is a little bit of an excuse. Um, and I know that's kind of like. Um, a little bit of an a-hole thing to say, but what I mean by that is um, there are so many sources available to you to talk to your prospective customer, even if you have zero customers right now. Um, I'm talking about you know the old school like hey drive you know Facebook ads to your landing page and get people to answer questions, all the way to actually buying market panelists. Um, so there's a self-serve company that we recommend to a lot of startups who are trying to you know in the exact same situation that you just referenced um, called Ask Your Target Market or AYTM.com. Um, and they can get you anyone from you know a soccer mom or dad in Kansas all the way up to you know a VP of marketing at you know a larger company. And what's beautiful about that is if you do this market research, you actually save yourself a heck of a lot of time um, trying to A B test or guess and check your way to product market fit because more often than not you are facing the exact problem that you just said, which is you don't have a lot of customers or validation or even visitors for that matter. Um, so if you go to those particular you know, websites or you, you know, get some of those answers, what you can end up doing is actually figuring out, oh, you know, they actually do care about analytics or they do care about support. Let's start adding that in right away rather than wasting a bunch of time, you know, A-B testing or building a bunch of things that people don't want and then having to kill those features later and, you know, essentially wasting all of that that production um, and dev time as well. Cool. And that was AYTM.com. Yeah, and there's a there's a bunch of other types of companies as well. There's like Instantly, um, there's USAMP Research Now if you want to get some really bigger like Fortune 500 type respondents. Um, but, you know, the world of the internet has basically created the opportunity for you to get anyone, anyone essentially in the world or any demographic in the world um, to answer questions or, you know, to get research on. I mean, we at, at Price Intelligently, um, 
we work, we basically help source these for our software, for our customers. And, you know, we've gotten anything from like a very stereotypical consumer panel all the way to, um, hey, I want to talk to IT people at healthcare companies in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, it, you can get really, really granular. And of course, the more granular you get, it's a little bit more expensive. But think about it in the context of time as well as, you know, wasted opportunity. Um, a lot of times we, you know, our path of least resistance is just to build stuff and not talk to customers. And um, the only people who are going to be able to tell you what to build, how much to sell it for, are your physical customers or potential customers. Okay, makes sense. You talked about A-B testing a little earlier. So, you know, you, you've, I do know you guys have a blog post about why you shouldn't be A-B testing uh, your pricing strategy, at, at least not, you know, not how like a typical online marketer would test it. So why is that? Yeah, we got a lot of flack for that blog post, surprisingly, um, mainly because people love A-B tests. Um, and the reason for it is um, we weren't saying that A-B testing as a statistical framework is bad. Um, I think like that's a, you know, multivariate tests and A-B tests can actually be really successful. Um, what, what we're saying though is, is that most companies face the problem that you kind of alluded to where, um, you know, I don't know how much traffic, you know, your site gets or, you know, I know how much traffic we get and, you know, we, we do pretty well with our content, but we're not getting, you know, hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands and millions of visits to justify doing like a very multivariate intensive test on our pricing. Because um, if you think about it, if you just do one, you know, one test, like maybe you change one price point um, for 50% of your traffic to another price point for the other 50%, then, you know, we definitely could do that type of A-B test. And a lot of us, you know, listening could do as well. But there's not just the price point, there's your value metric, there's the different packaging, then there's a lot of different design elements on your pricing page. And so what we recommend is you have to do your homework first to figure out what those tests really should look like. And then once you've done your homework and kind of built that customer profile and then made some decisions around strategic direction on your pricing, then what you can do is actually run that A-B test on one axis or two axes depending on your size because you know it's, it's almost like a, a false positive you know, situation when you start to try to A-B test pricing um, when you're really small or don't have a ton of traffic. And when I say don't have a ton of traffic, I mean like you need like hundreds of thousands of visits a month. Um, and even, you know, really actually you need thousands of conversions to actually justify an A-B test, um, which a lot of us, you know, in, in B2B SaaS don't necessarily have. That makes total sense. It sounds like, you know, do a little preparation before that. And, you know, I think a lot of us read so much online, you know, about A-B testing that we 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 don't realize that you know a lot of times these are consumer websites that have you know millions of millions of visits a month and you know we're just not quite there so that that makes total sense um and i think the other side of things is when you ab test pricing strategy and when you, when you do like a 50-50 split and other people start to see a higher one and a lower one and then you know it it's, it might even affect your brand at the end of the day too right uh say that one more time sorry yeah, i'm, really I'm saying so i'm saying you know when you A-B test your pricing, when you're doing a 50-50 split, sometimes you might get called out for doing that test because customers don't like seeing that and you know they start seeing the inconsistencies with your brand and you're getting called out, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, I mean... There's ways to solve that, but I think that like, yeah, I mean, it, it's worth, it's worth the potential PR problem. Like Amazon gets in trouble with this sometimes. Um, but their A-B tests at this point are like 30 seconds long just because of the amount of traffic they get. Um, but anyways, um, 
you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you don't want to necessarily have, you know, any PR disaster early on. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you got to protect that brand and, and really measure the, the value of, you know, not necessarily doing as much homework as you probably should without the, without the public facing test. All right. So let's talk about acquisition. I mean, how did you guys for, sure. you know, let's, let's talk about both sides actually. So for price intelligently, how did you guys go about getting your first 10 customers? Just hustle and grind, man. And I know everyone says that, but, um, we, um, we got a little lucky in the sense of we had um, an article written about our launch um, in uh, one of the tech local tech blogs here in Boston, um, and that's how we acquired our first two customers, which were um, well, actually three customers, which was Litmus, um, Smart Bear Software, mm. and uh, Compete. Um, so we started working with those folks, and it was it was very early days. Like um, I'm almost embarrassed at the first projects we did versus what we do now. Just you know, as all software and you know stuff right. like that looks like. Um, but then you know, kind of going from that three to ten, and then ten to a hundred. Um, what we really found to be extremely useful for our market was our content. Um, and I think it was a little bit of a chicken or the egg situation because, um, you know, content can work in a lot of different markets. But what we found in particular was that, um, most people who are responsible for pricing or should be responsible for pricing in organizations aren't really confident in in their decisions because once again they just have never done it before um, and they're just kind of you know getting the project on their lap and so when we started writing pieces of content that were like hey you know here's um, you know here's how you should think about discounting or here's how you should think about X, Y, or Z, all of a sudden we started getting, you know, a lot of inbound leads and we just set up a basic funnel using HubSpot. Um, and that allowed me as at the time, the only person working at the company and, um, you know, bootstrapping the hell out of the thing, um, to automate a lot of what we needed to do to start growing. And, um, from there we had an offer that was a price optimization assessment, which was essentially me getting on the phone with them and doing a bit of a discovery call where I would, um, you know, essentially ask them a lot of probing questions about their pricing strategy, their monetization. Um, and I, inadvertently I think made them a little uncomfortable with how they were pricing or thinking about it and then we were just kind of a natural fit to help them solve that problem mainly because we had a, a solution that would give them actual data instead of just kind of you know talking head feedback um, and kind of went from there um, I think that probably got us to you know 40 or 50 and then we brought on you know some more folks and um, you know now we have a nice little outbound and inbound sales um, side of the house. Um, as well as, you know, just cranking on more and more content. Um, and so, yeah, I think long story short, I think for us it was, um, because it was definitely a, a non-touchless sale, um, just driving people to that form, getting their contacts and then being super nice and, and getting them on the phone. Okay. Let's talk, let's dive a little deeper into your, your content marketing, uh, strategies. I mean, so right now, you know, how much, how much content are you guys producing per month right now? And I guess, you know, roughly how much traffic are you guys getting per month right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, um, it's, it's not as consistent as we would like. I'll be honest. Um, we're now up to about 
closer to two. We're averaging about two blog posts a week. We haven't blogged probably in the last couple of weeks, though, because we just threw a, a conference called SaaS Fest here in Boston mm. um, for the SaaS community that, that we've been kind of cranking on and focusing on in particular. Yeah. Um, but in terms of content, I would say we, we, we're aiming for about two posts per week. Um, and as you'll notice on a lot of our posts, it's, it's not fluffy. None of it is, here's a list of top things I use to you know, be a better founder or anything like that. It's like really in-depth, data-driven content, um, especially on um, our ProfitWell blog, which we launched um, earlier this year alongside the product. Um, and so the way we think about content is really we got to provide a ton of value and um, almost as its own product um, where we look at retention on our blog metrics um, and repeat visits and who's opening and, and the style of folks that are opening. And um, I think that what we've grown to, we're getting around 80,000 visits per month at this point um, on both blogs. And what that's allowed us to do is, you know, get a really, really good lead volume. Um, and we're going to be, you know, ramping up even further into the future. Um, we just launched something, uh, we announced something at SaaS Fest called the SaaS DNA project um, that we're partnering with Heaton Shaw, the user uh. testing team. Um, and um, the animals team, which is Walter Chen of, of I Done This. And um, we're basically each month going to publish what's almost a 30,000 um, word chapter um, after looking at like 110 user testing videos and digging into a bunch of data, a different you know breakdown of SaaS. And so the first one is Heaton essentially writing about the anatomy of a SaaS marketing site. Um, we'll do the anatomy of SaaS pricing. We're going to get some other partners to do the anatomy of things like SaaS onboarding, um, SaaS growth, et cetera. And we're going to curate it to make sure that folks are you know really, really the best people to write those posts and then make sure they're really sexy and data-driven and um, really consumable and um, you know we're we're going to keep it very independent as well. We don't want it to necessarily be you know thing with a bunch of ads or anything. It's just going to be very focused on how can we do the best to give to the SaaS community because you know inevitably it'll help us overall. Got it. Okay, that's cool. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great undertaking. It sounds like I mean you know content producing content on the blog is just one piece of it, but I mean when you start going, uh, you start pumping out these thirty thousand you know epic pieces of content. You're doing live events. I mean that's just a that's just a continuation of, you know, the content marketing that you're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the event for us was, and then the DNA project was like, hey, like, how can we do a, um, you know, actually a, almost a minimum viable test of one, an event, and then two, a, just a, a giant piece of content on a seminal topic in SaaS. And um, I think they... Uh, frankly, they are paths of least resistance for us, you know, meaning, um, you know, events, some of us have a little bit of an event background. Um, and then writing is something that, you know, we always will do. Um, and so we're, we're a little worried about like getting better at distribution and not you know, falling on the crux of just creating more content. Um, but yeah, it's something that we're, we're essentially doubling down on. And I think that, um, what, what, what we're finding is, is, you know, it's, it's something that our, our audience really appreciates and as long as we keep it as you know balanced as possible i think it's going to be you know continually successful awesome very interested to see that um and we'll link to that in the show notes too when the time is right um but going back to your your content you know the, the blog that you're producing right now i mean how many leads would you say you get just off of your blog post each month 
Yeah, great question. So I would say our visit to lead ranges, so that's how we, you know, that's what we measure, ranges about three to 5%, depending on the piece of content. Um, so to give you context, you know, you're, well, I, I gave my visit count before, so I'll let the, the folks do some simple math, but um, those aren't necessarily sales qualified, of course. You know, there's a lot of marketing qualified leads, especially for some of our more affinity content. And affinity content to us isn't, you know, hey, here's why transparency is important or, you know, more culture based things. Um, it's, it's more, um, if we write a post on acquisition, uh, that's not necessarily our bread and butter for either price intelligently or profit well because they're more focused on financial metrics or monetization. Um, so that's that stuff doesn't necessarily convert as well, but it's it's more top of the funnel content for us. Um, and when I say convert, I mean into like a bottom of the funnel customer. Um, but that's kind of you know where we're sitting right now. Okay, and, and just to clarify, in this scenario, a lead would be an email collected, or would it be something else? Yeah, it's an email collected. And the way we've set up our funnel is it's basically um, visit, then lead, uh, then MQL. That's someone who's looked at, I think it's like six pieces of content. Um, and then our sales qualified lead is right around 10 pieces of content. Um, and the reason we set that there is because we know that once you've reached about 13 to 14 pieces of content, both through your, your own, you know, um, your own practices of looking at our blog, but also from, you know, probably getting a few pieces from our sales team, um, we know you're very, very primed and have a very, very high likelihood of, um, of closing a deal down the funnel. Interesting. Okay. Great. Um, all right, so I wanted to switch gears here. I mean, what's can you tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing the business? Uh, just one. Um, I think <laughs> where do we start? Uh, I think there's there's plenty of plenty of big struggles. I think the first big struggle for me in the business was we had um, two part-time co-founders um, when we initially founded founded everything and um, yeah, they definitely contributed to to the business, but it was one of those things where um, I, as a first time CEO and first time founder, didn't necessarily take the reins of setting expectations, um, both for you know, hey, the help that I needed, but also for you know, events such as like, hey, you know, we need you to come on if this hits this, you know this mark, you know, that's when you should come on full time. And that would have really helped with a lot of stress, um, you know, early on. Um, and even, you know, a little bit now as well. And I think, um, beyond that, I think some of the bigger things that, you know, were some big problems were, um, you know, just, just the natural stuff that a lot of people talk about, which is, um, staying mentally, physically, and emotionally like, you know, tight in terms of, you know, keeping your highs low and your, your lows high. Um, it's really hard when you're essentially, you know, a solo founder because, you know, that's kind of how it ends up being with some part-time founders. Um, and you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, especially in those first six months where it's just me, you know, working 18 hour days, you know, all of a sudden it's like, um, you know, you, you gain weight, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily, uh, yeah, I gained about a hundred pounds. Wow. Um, actually, um, I've lost 50 of it. Thank God this year but in the past three years i've i've definitely gone up and and starting to go back down and so um yeah a lot of that stuff is is stuff to solve and i guess i'll I'll go with those two but i could probably talk for days about you know the the problems or mistakes that that i've definitely made no definitely definitely appreciate that i think we're gonna have to do a round two another time when we can go a little deeper (laughs) to to profit well so we can save it for later Um, absolutely but just going on here i mean how old are you right now i'm 28 28. Okay. Um, so let's talk about, I mean, what, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 20 year old self? 
Uh, ooh, uh, don't be such an asshole. No. Um, I, there, I, no. I think there's truth to that for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say uh, don't chase the golden treadmill, um, and I'll explain that. So um, I don't think I've, I'm not the one who came up with that phrasing, but um, the the thing with a lot of college kids, especially I come from a very blue-collar family. Um, my parents, I, I still explain what I do, and they're like not sure exactly what it is. Um, and just want to make sure that you know uh, I'm doing something you know honorable. But um, what I coming from that background when I went to school, um, it was it was basically chasing a resume and then chasing you know a corporate or a large job. Like you know you go work for the government because you know you probably will never get fired from working for the government. You know obviously you, know, you can get fired, but you know it's it's very unlikely. And then going to work at corporate, you know Google, um, you know it's Disneyland for adults basically, and you're on what the golden treadmill where you know you're you're really really well paid and really well taken care of like. And you're not necessarily, um, you know, you're not necessarily um, getting paid. You know, you're getting paid above probably what you're worth. And um, I have nothing but good things to say about Google. Um, I got, um, I was actually, uh, it's probably a, a bomb to drop without having enough time to talk about it. But <laughs> I actually got, um, um, I got a cancer when I was at Google um, about five years ago, and wow. I um, didn't pay. I didn't even see a bill. So I went through treatment, surgery, more treatment, didn't even see a bill. Like they even offered, they're like, we'll pay you full time if you just want to take time off to take care of yourself. And um, so I, I have nothing good thing to say. And it's it's a brilliant place that I would love to go retire at one day. But um, I think that it's it's one of those things whereas, you know, someone who has, you know, any ambition, you know, chasing that golden treadmill isn't necessarily the best thing for you to do to feel fulfilled because I wake up every day and there are struggles, there are hard days, there are days where I'm exhausted, but there's never a day where I'm like, I don't want to do my job. Um, and I think that there were definitely days even at Google where I was like not fulfilled in, you know, selling or optimizing AdWords essentially. So I would just say like, don't chase that golden treadmill as much. Um, and I know a lot of our generation isn't, especially as, you know, more and more freelancers and things like that pop up. Right. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, it, uh, I was born into pretty much the same type of scenario where it's like, yeah, go get a stable job when you go to a great college and all that. But do you think for us, it's more about more about freedom than the money? Yeah. I mean, for me, like I just, I, I, I think it's, I don't know. My, my parents thought I was insane for leaving Google. Like they still kind of like, my dad still wants me to become a doctor. He's like, well, you can go be a doctor. You know, you should be a doctor. You're smart. And, and I think for me, it, it is about that freedom because, um, you know, when you, I don't know, I, I don't know you that well, but like I, you know, coming from that kind of a background, um, you know, it's hard for you because you're you're inherently a very hardworking person. Just because that's what your parents did, that's how they were successful. They weren't necessarily well off, but everything that they got was out of hard work. And so you just you just don't know how to turn off working hard, and sometimes to a fault, right? You know, right. you'd rather work hard than smart sometimes. And I think that when you have that mindset, what ends up happening is when you're working your ass off and someone who is, you know, above you in terms of seniority or even to next to you in terms of a peer and you're not necessarily seeing the exact result of that work turn into um, promotions, more responsibility, more cash or whatever, 
all of a sudden it's like, well, well, what am I doing? You know, I, I had a really, really lucky opportunity where at Google, I created a product that made, you know, made Google some money, you know, and, and I, you know, got an award and, and, you know, some recognition, but in a, in a check for five grand and I'm not ungrateful, but it was one of those things where I was just like, why am I working my ass so hard, you know, for, for not necessarily that freedom that you're talking about. And right. I think it was, that was the one thing. And, and, and I would say like, you know, I would rather, you know, if, if this all hits, hits the fan and, and price intelligently and profitable, I'll just tank. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to work earlier stage than later stage because I think that there's, um, there's a lot of that freedom of not only just, you know, seeing the product of and the fruits of your labor, but ultimately the freedom of creativity that you get with solving problems and really honing your craft, whether that's marketing, um, building a business, developing something, um, or, you know, all of the above, depending on your role. Right. Totally agree with that. And I do the same exact thing. Um, great. Few more questions on on my side. Um, how do you structure your ideal day? Because no day is ever ideal for a CEO. What's what's an ideal day look like? Yeah, I I cuddle with the chaos. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if that's like the best way to do this, but um, it's probably what you know attributed to my nutrition and health going out the door a little bit, you know, over the past three years. But, um, I, so I start my day basically, I I do the one thing I do every day is I meditate. Um, and that's, that's something where, you know, like I tell my dad that, you know, blue collar guy, you know, retiring from the Navy reserves, um, you know, and, and, you know, back in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and he's like, meditate, you know, why, what is that? You know, is that some weird East coast? No. And he's, he's not that bad, but, um, but that's, that's the one thing that honestly I started doing, you know, beginning of this year. And it's just, it's, it's literally changed my life. It's made me a lot more mindful and it's made me a little bit, you know, just a little bit less stressed and a little bit happier in terms of dealing with some of the chaos. And so that's how I start my day. Um, typically try to eat breakfast oftentimes, you know, don't, um, and then kind of get in the office, work on something creative, not necessarily, you know, email or, or answering tickets or something like that in the morning. Um, and then, you know, do some of the traditional stuff of like batching my email time and, you know, batching meetings and stuff like that. All right. Now, if you were to recommend one book to everyone, what would it be? Yeah. Uh, ooh. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to come off. I don't know. I don't know if (laughs) my dad probably is going to make fun of me for this one too, but, um, I I would recommend Siddhartha actually by Herman Hesse. So, um, Siddhartha is, is just one of those books where I, I think I just read it at the right time and some transitions in my life. And, um, it just really kind of hit me, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, bringing home, you know, some of the, the more concepts of, of craftsmanship and, um, really the, the, the concept of honing that craft and ultimately, you know, getting, getting in touch with oneself and, and, and being more mindful about some of your own thoughts and your own decisions. So, um, and the second book that I would read and, um, is actually 10% happier, um, by Dan Harris. And the reason that I would read that one along with Siddhartha is because Siddhartha is a little bit more it's like you know a little bit more of a storyline and then dan harris's book 10 percent happier is perfect for the cynics in the world and i'm a i'm a cynic for better or for worse where you know if, if you were like oh you should try meditating i'd be like oh meditating but he's a guy who kind of goes through his journey with finding meditation and um how he you know just really was kind of like 
Ugh, the Deepak Chopra stuff, like I like what he's saying, but there's no evidence. Um, and then like how he kind of went back and forth with some different, you know, folks in that space and finally kind of came to peace with some of the evidence as well as some of the, you know, practices of, of meditation and kind of Eastern medicine and things like that. Love it. We'll drop both of those in the show notes. But Patrick, what's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah, so I'm at Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S on Twitter. Um, you can also just feel free to email me at Patrick at PriceIntelligently.com. Um, I inbox zero as, as quickly as I can. Um, and you know, if you don't receive a response from me right away, you'll definitely receive a response from me. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that since so many people helped me early on as well. Great. So everyone, this is Patrick Campbell, CEO of Price Intelligently and ProfitWell. Make sure you check them out. Pat, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K, and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.